a number of papers just came back came out recently, which we posted on um, our LinkedIn channel. But the interconnection queue of uh, solar and wind projects is like through the roof as to how many of them are just waiting and how long it takes for them to go through the study. We are wasting potential to go build renewables. And you know, with Bitcoin mining, it's it could be very much a you know Johnny on the spot, short-term solution, come in for a couple of years enable renewables to get built and these machines run out take them away the rest of the power once the grid is open can go to the grid the way we are imagining bitcoin mining going in how we're modeling projects is we are using a portion of the underutilized undervalued power from these uh, solar plants to go into bitcoin mining and that underutilized portion can help increase the economics for these projects where otherwise we have no other solution for. And with Bitcoin's nature of being you know, deployable anywhere you are, like you can put it in shipping containers, it can show up to your site, you can ramp it up and down. It doesn't, you know, the Bitcoin network doesn't care. The Bitcoin network doesn't need a contract with you to say how many Bitcoin miners you can plug in, turn on or turn off. Like it's a decentralized network. There's no hierarchy in it. There's no enforcement of it. The rules are mathematical. Computers are deciding what happens. It's very transparent. You're not interrupting anybody, anything, any human being by turning off your Bitcoin miners or by adding a bunch to it. That flexibility, those degrees of freedom, we've never had. And we can leverage that to help grow renewables. Welcome to the Progressive Bitcoiner podcast where we explore the intersection of Bitcoin and progressive issues. I'm your host, Mark Stefani. My guests today are the dynamic energy duo Nima Tabatabayi and Ali Chahesas. Nima and Ali are co-founders of Optimize Infrastructure. Ali is also the co-founder and CEO of Terra Verde Energy, an independent energy advisory firm. Nima is also the chief product officer at Moto Energy, an energy analytics platform. Optimized infrastructure focuses on improving the economics of solar by coordinating power flow across distributed energy resources, including Bitcoin. Together, Ali and Nima have provided a fresh and nuanced perspective on how Bitcoin can be integrated into solar energy, helping our renewable energy transition and improving the resiliency of our grid. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode. As always, greatly appreciate it. Ali and Nima, thank you so much for joining me on the Progressive Bitcoiner podcast. I'm so happy to have the two of you. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us, Mark. Glad to be here. Absolutely. So I wanted to bring the two of you on the podcast, not only for your expertise, but also because of your fantastic ability to convey your message by breaking down how an electrical grid works, where renewables fit into it, and ultimately how Bitcoin helps renewable build out. The two of you have a very measured yet optimistic approach to Uh, to that message. And so I'm eager to get into the conversation. Awesome. And yeah, Mark, you got to be optimistic, man. What's the alternative? Exactly. So I don't think I speak for myself when saying that one can have a set of values or care about something deeply, yet still not have a full grasp of the complexity of that issue of the value. And of course, I'm speaking about uh, climate change. And so admittedly, it's something that I've cared about my entire life. 
but certainly did not understand the, again, details and complexity of what it takes to address climate change. I thought, you know, if we just had the right politicians, if we just could pass the right laws, we could flip a switch and all of a sudden start using solar, hydro, and wind tomorrow and everything would be okay. I don't think I'm alone in that perception, but clearly that's not the case, right? Uh, that we can just flip the switch. So why don't we tackle that as our first question? Why can't we simply switch to solar, hydro, wind, renewables tomorrow and everything be okay? Um, yeah, I like the, the action-oriented way you're thinking about this, Mark. And you know, we'd like to open up the way we answer this question with our the statement as to what we think the solution is, and then talk about why there are problems heading our way or that we are grappling with currently in the renewable space. And then what I would like to do is, given the action-oriented nature of you, your audience, we'd love to finish the podcast here with a call to action for everyone that can help all of us get there. So with that, the opening statement for us is uh, simple as renewables need Bitcoin. That's the message we want to get out there. And there's a, a big why behind all of this that is quite existential for those of us that have adopted that there is a uh, climate change challenge ahead of us. And that one of the key solutions to tackling this climate change is electrification of many of our industries and leveraging the cheapest cost of electricity to decarbonize those industries. And today, us as engineers, as professionals in this industry, one of the tools that we have in our arsenal to go and provide this cheapest source of clean electricity are wind and solar. And for this conversation today, just for your audience's uh, background, most of our expertise and our background come from the solar industry. So we will be over-indexing, talking more about solar. Uh, the physics and finance also apply to wind and other variable intermittent renewables. Uh, in some cases, hydro, but by and large, our knowledge base comes from solar. So that's what we'll be talking about and covering some examples. Um, so with that, you know, I want to just open up that statement, talk about um, you know, why uh, we are bullish and why we want solar to help us do the decarbonization uh, and provide the cheapest cost of electricity. But why is there a headwind? The headwind that we have come to see and experience uh, for those of us that have been involved in the industry in the last two decades, is encapsulated in what we call the problem that renewables have, which is they are prisoners of time and geography. And that's our poetic way of trying to capture the headline so we can bring attention to this problem that we are grappling with. Renewables, by feature, by their inherent design, they are good at certain locations where we have the sunniest areas, the windiest uh, valleys, that's where we go to deploy renewables. And it makes sense, you know, go where the resource is best at. So we all go and aggregate in those areas. Also, inherently, renewables operate when the resource is available, when the sun shines, when the wind blows. So what that means is that renewables need to aggregate around each other in the same areas, and they only operate together when the resource becomes available. 
Generally, when you start off in a geography and you deploy renewables, in the beginning, everything is great. You are getting zero supply of, call it the raw material, the resource to generate power. These are all technologies. And as a technology, there's a cost reduction curve that we've all seen, they've all adopted. When I got involved in the solar industry in 2000s, the dream was to get to $3 a watt for solar. We have gone as low as you know, 12 cents per watt. It's the prices have come back up. We have struggles in the industry just from general production and tariffs and, and all the other things. But we've gone from $3 to call it 30 cents now you know, without in, in you know span of a decade, decade and a half, which is amazing. Same thing with wind. And as these technologies have gotten cheaper and we've gotten more of them deployed in locations, what ends up happening is the pattern we start to observe in that at a certain point when the penetration of renewables, the total installed capacity, the megawatts of renewables in a grid goes above a certain number and it ranges you know, by geography, by grid, by region, but somewhere in that five to 10%, once we go above that, you start to see a, a value deflation of the electricity produced by these renewables at certain times of the day. It's not all the time, it's not 100% of the hours that they produce, it's certain of those hours, which is generally around the peak production times. For solar, what has happened is we started to see this take shape in the wholesale markets and then ultimately trickle down to the retail markets, which was in the middle of the day, we used to have the most expensive cost of electricity in California. And what has happened now is the middle of the day electricity prices have now compressed to some of the cheapest hours and also some of the cleanest hours of the day. So as a success story, what solar has done is because of its production and because we invested in it and we deployed them rooftop on homes and buildings, we deployed them at the distribution grid, we deployed them at transmission grid. Altogether, this uh, volume of electricity has become available in the middle of the day, which has cleaned up the grid at that time, but also has suppressed the prices, which means the value of electricity for solar in the middle of the day is, is getting diminished. And that's exactly when solar produces power. So what ends up happening is, a bit of a anti-network effect shapes here, which is to describe a network effect, think of any platform that has a number of users on it. The more users get added to the platform, the better the platform becomes for all of them. With solar and with wind, we have the opposite effect, that once we go past this, this, uh, this trigger point, this bandwidth where the penetration, the grid goes above a certain number, the more solar gets added to the grid, the lower the value becomes for everyone involved in that generation market for all the other solar players, which is you know, a problem because in order for us to want to continue down the path of electrifying, decarbonizing, what we want to have is solar owners and investment into solar projects to be perceived as some of the most lucrative, most beneficial, 
investments we can make as a society. However, today, as we're looking to the future, what we see is more challenges around exporting the value of solar and finding revenues for it that helps more and more investment to come into this industry. And that's the headline challenge that we are struggling with in the renewables. And again, I've spoken mostly about solar, same challenges exist around wind, and we can get into the, some of the numbers and research papers that have come around this topic, but some of the key factors that point to these issues are the increasing curtailments, which is when the grid requires you to shut off your plant or when prices go negative and doesn't make sense to generate power anymore. So I'll pause here so we can get into some of the details. Just briefly, why do prices go negative? Nima, do you want to take that one? Yeah, sure. So in principle, it's uh, an oversupply problem, right? So it's the hours of the day where you have excess electricity. It's not as simple as we make it out because uh, we think of everything at the grid level, but a lot of the issues to address the negative the negative pricing issue first, right? So it's an oversupp- hours of oversupply. The price it gets compressed effectively to zero. Um, however, because of the nature of some of the tax credits that uh, renewables has, wind or solar, it can still be beneficial for a renewable plant to generate electricity at some negative price because they'll secure a tax credit for the units that are generated. So they're willing to effectively bid into the market at you know up to a negative price of their equivalent to their tax credit. So that's how the negative prices come about. And we have that problem in Europe and the UK as well, where we have wind plant that is willing to, you know, go into the market at negative prices. The, the, the other thing to point out that Ali said, the other challenge that renewables places on our grids is actually an infrastructure challenge. So our grids have been built for centralized a small number of centralized generators, right? Like large power stations um, that we could choose where to build. So, you know, like you go to like uh, New York City, right? You'll see these kind of legacy power stations in the city, right? Like some of them are in Manhattan and in Brooklyn and stuff, right? So we chose where to build stations and we built the infrastructure to get that power from the generating plant to, to the consumers. And that's how the grids have been built. And now we're in a paradigm where we don't get to choose where the generation should be built because, as Ali said, we have to build it where the resources are good. And that places a physical infrastructure challenge as well on our grids because we have to build transmission capacity and distribution capacity. And this has to be two-way capacity as well. So, you know, we might have capacity in a certain geography, we think, because there's electricity there, but that might be you know, low voltage, one-way capacity to get electricity to homes. And now suddenly we're saying those homes are going to be power stations. And we need, we're going to have a huge increase in the amount of electricity flowing through those wires, and it's going to go backwards, <laughs> right, back into the grid. And that that creates huge challenges as well. So you can get negative prices in a locational way as well, where, you know, the grid might not be oversupplied with electricity, but one geography of the grid, one portion, right, one valley of the grid, and that's because of transmission constraints. So we, there's not enough capacity to get that energy into the parts of the grid that need it. So you'll get 
you know, a locational imbalance in pricing. And this is something that we're seeing a lot. Uh, this is why you hear so much about West Texas. So that's something we're seeing a lot in Texas. Huge amount of resources in certain geographies of Texas, but a lack of transmission capacity to get that resource, get that electricity to like Houston and, and Dallas and, you know, other load centers. So there's two challenges there, right? It's the economic one based on geography and time that Ali presented. And the other one is more of an infrastructure challenge of how to actually get the capacities that we build to the loads <laughs> that, um, that we operate. So if I can summarize, what I hear you saying is uh, to summarize both the prisoners of time and geography uh, metaphor is that you can have renewables uh, producing energy for us uh, excuse me, electricity in a particular uh, location, we'll say West Texas. But then it becomes challenging to get that electricity to where it's needed most. In addition, the sun is not always shining. Is there also the same problem, and is this what you're referring to, Nemo, if you have solar panels, say, on the roof of your house, that that is not only uh, an issue for the house uh, yourself, but also as it affects the broader market and the, the broader grid. Is that correct? Yes. So th that can affect it. But actually what, I, what I'm more referring to is the fact that we see massive queues called, they're called like inter interconnection queues. So in every grid right now, we have backlogs of thousands of projects waiting, people that are waiting to get permission to build renewable, renewable assets, solar farms. And all they need is a, a green light from the grid operator that yes, we can actually support your renewable capacity. And that is something that's stalling the entire industry from deploying. Um, Ali can probably speak more to maybe some of the challenges in, in California as an example. Yeah, that whole notion of the fact that there are renewable projects that have been proposed and the grid operators are not able to accept them. And some of that might be bureaucratic, some of that dependent on the studies for the grid to be done, uh, which is coming from infrastructure challenges. But the net effect of all of this is we have capital that is eager to be deployed to put renewables on this planet, on the grid, but it's not going to happen. And we now have to wait and figure out how can we get these things deployed faster? and before capital loses patience and goes somewhere else, right? So then we've got prisoners of time, geography, and now bureaucracy, it sounds like. There is some of that too, yeah. I mean, it is some of the issues we grapple with in this industry, in the renewables, is physics-based, right? It is purely around, you know, there's a fixed capacity of transmission we have right now, and until we improve the transmission and build new lines, you know, we won't be able to move the uh, power around where it's needed. Some of it is also just bureaucratic and policy made. And it has to do with how our re-regulated markets operate and what the utilities who operate the, the wires need in order to collect their returns. So in California, we have had a rooftop solar program for a while now. Um, the tariff has been called the net energy metering, which um, many other states have as well. 
we have gone through one iteration of this program where net energy metering uh, evolved and the utilities pushed to make that uh, a little bit more constrained. So the value of electricity that a homeowner, a business owner that has rooftop solar that can send to the grid start to get diminished. Currently, right now in California, we are going through that battle one more time. There is a new net energy metering battle happening and you look up headlines in, uh, for this challenge in California, you'll start to see. Um, we had actually had to go out on protest in front of the California Public Utilities Commission uh, in order to have our voices heard that solar is once again being attacked because of the way policies are set up for utilities to collect their revenues you know, for their business, for their investors. But the way things are set up, this bureaucracy around it, is actually hurting how we can promote and deploy more solar on rooftops, right? And this is California, which you might think that it's the state that's leading all things renewable and green energy, but we as people in this industry that want to promote and do more solar to offset load at buildings are struggling with the fact that we can't get value for that power and you know, that struggle is continuing and it's only going to get worse. Like if there are hypotheses around how utilities will want to kill net energy metering. And if they don't succeed in this round of tariff changes, they'll push again in three years you know, with the next case. And that's purely because of how they're set up. And it's just a, uh, the way they collect their revenues that is against the nature of the, of the opportunity that we have to deploy solar on our rooftops. And what I've heard you say is that it, it can take three to four years for some of these projects, not necessarily to get off the ground, but to get approval uh, before even making their electricity available. Is that correct? It could take somewhere between 18 months, two years for the grid operator to study your project that you've proposed in what they call a cluster study with a bunch of other projects that have been proposed. So they can assess the interconnection opportunity or costs needed for you and your cohort of projects to get added to the grid. So sometimes you have to go that long before you find out that, you know, if this, we're talking about like a big utility scale project, that if you can put all of your power to the grid, and if not, how much of it, and if you want to put all that power to the grid, how much do you have to pay for interconnection upgrade costs in order to be able to essentially get your power to the market? And what that poses is time wasted where solar developer would have to wait around to figure out what is the risk here to the result to come back and might say you know, only a portion of your power can go to the grid. The rest of it is too cost prohibitive to do so. So what that means is you're either now having to figure out your risk around your project capital to figure out, can you afford to pay for the upgrade costs? Or are you going to build a smaller project because you can't get all of it to the grid? And if you're building a smaller project, is the project even still economical? Is it worth the headache, right? If you're out there planning to build a 500 megawatt solar plant, but the results come back and you can only do 100, you know, the investment that you had gone out there to collect might not be interested in such a size of a project. 
So what we're doing is, you know, we have opportunity to build as much solar as we can. We have the land, we have the resource, but because we can't get it to the markets, we're not going to build those projects. And if you can't build a bigger project, your levelized cost of electricity that you're building for that one job might be in a, you know, uneconomical. It might be too high for what you need to do in order to compete, in order to deliver the electricity at a cost that the market would want. Well, I think we've done a good job of describing the problems uh, that renewables face. And again, we are obviously all for renewables, solar, et cetera, um, but they come with downsides as well, which is the perfect uh, setup now for discussing uh, why Bitcoin uh, is a unique solution to these problems. Excellent. All right, solution time. Nima, I think maybe we want to start with you talking about Bitcoin as a global buyer of electricity, and then we can drill down into the specific applications? Yeah, sure. So when we think of Bitcoin mining as just a load or just as a consumer of electricity, I don't think that captures actually what Bitcoin mining is is really doing with that electricity in real time. So everyone uses electricity, right? But we don't directly monetize electricity, right? That is what a generator wants to do. A generator, a solar generator who builds a 500 megawatt plant that Ali just mentioned, why are they building that plant? Is because they believe they can convert, you know, solar irradiance into money in order to generate investment return and, and, and uh, you know, make a project profitable. So that's really what they're seeking to do. What are their options until, you know, before Bitcoin mining? Well, the only way to monetize electricity has been to connect to the grid, pump your electricity into the grid, and you know, effectively monetize it by being paid you know, a, a certain rate on wholesale markets or pre-agreed PPA rates, whatever type of you know, contract you might sign. But that's really the goal of the generators, to monetize that resource and, and generate a revenue stream. And until today, their only option has been the grid. And that is why it is so important. That's why one of the biggest considerations that you make when you plan projects is which geography should we be in? And by geography, I mean which jurisdiction, which bureaucratic geography should we be in? So the exact same resource, you know, the exact same amount of sunlight that hits a solar panel could generate a completely different amount of revenue if it is sold in California versus Nevada, for example, I'm, I'm just I'm just making these, just showing that 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 jurisdictional line, which grid you connect to, if or which market you connect to, dr drastically changes the monetization. So electricity markets are very they're very local, they're very disconnected and disjointed, and this is why your electricity price is different than my electricity price, and theoretically it's kind of a fungible commodity because it's you know. It's just a unit of energy, and it's the same electricity that you use and I use, but we all pay vastly different rates, um, and it, it comes down to that. So one of the main considerations you make as a renewable generator is, you know, which grid should I connect to? Which geography should I build projects in? Because what is the monetization opportunity? And, and that's complex, right? It's prices, but also some of the other things we mentioned before. How long will it take to build this? Um, what other types of... Um, you know, kind of 
caps and restraints and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, are involved in that project. So you kind of put that all together and you get a business case. There's never before been a way to monetize electricity at scale other than connecting to your local grid. And that's one of the big paradigm shifts that Bitcoin mining introduces, because you can now connect to a type of load, which we call a Bitcoin miner, that directly and instantly monetizes electricity in real time. And you can think of that as a power market. And there is a price effectively in, you know, block subsidy and block reward and your percentage of the hash rate and all those aspects of the Bitcoin, you know, the difficulty adjustment, etc. All that comes together to effectively create almost a price for power on this market. And you're not paid by the grid or by a utility. This is one of the big misconceptions that there is in, um, I think, in the energy industry. You're paid by the Bitcoin network itself. And that's quite unique because until uh, recently, there's always been counterparty risk as to, you know, you're selling your electricity into the market or into a into a specific buyer, but are they going to pay you? Whether or not you'll still have subsidies the next year. Or you still have subsidies or, or even if you'll, you know, if you sign a power purchase agreement with a, a school or a, a business, will that school or business be able to pay you for your electricity in a year's time and two years time and five years time. So there's always this counterparty risk as well to look into when you're, when you're developing projects. And that I'll just point out that does hold back a lot, a lot of development in emerging markets, right? Where you might be able to build a project, but you know, do you like the a, a grid in Nigeria, for example, do you believe you're going to get paid over the duration of that project? What's the risk of it that you, you won't be paid or something like that. So you're paid by the Bitcoin network directly, effectively without counterparty risk. And you um, and, and it's very clear how you connect to this market. There are no bureaucratic hurdles or constraints. There's no transmission capacity, uh, like Ali mentioned. There's no cluster studies that the Bitcoin network conducts and says you have to wait 18 months to connect to become a Bitcoin miner. Bitcoin power market can absorb as much energy as we are willing to dedicate to it. And if you wanted to connect five megawatts or 5,000 megawatts to the Bitcoin mining network tomorrow, the network would accept it as long as the economics work for you. So this is why I, I, I have tried and Ali has tried, we've tried to kind of present the Bitcoin mining network, not as a, you know, the, some of the narrative is like as a load that wastes energy. It's actually a power market that pays for energy and it has unique rules and a global is global in nature that makes it very different to the localized grids that we're all that we're traditionally used to connecting to exactly so i would say maybe a tagline for audiences to hear and share with their peers would be there is this push that bitcoin wastes electricity the message should be Bitcoin pays for electricity. And once you break it down to these simple words that there is a buyer of electricity, Bitcoin pays for electricity, then you can start to figure out, oh, there's opportunity here that I can now figure out and have a degree of freedom to go and promote, produce more power 
because I'd have another buyer. Once you look at it through that lens, then you start to see this growth, this potential, this world of abundance that we want to go create. Does this scenario with the benefits of, of Bitcoin, does it apply in the same manner to, say, New York City as it does to Minneapolis to some rural town? In what sense? Like if you generate solar, sell it and have Bitcoin as a buyer? Correct. Yeah. I mean, that's it's geographically agnostic, right? All you need for uh, collecting payment from the Bitcoin network is deploying machines to use your electricity and you need a connection to the Bitcoin network, which you can do through the internet or through satellite connection. That's all it takes. You've listed uh, in previous writing uh, unique characteristics of Bitcoin mining that enable uh, specific solutions. So I think it'd be helpful if we break down each one of those five. You've described one as overbuilding of solar capacity at projects that were financially deemed to be small or uneconomical or remote areas. Tell us a little bit more about that point. So there's two applications of that that we can talk about specifically. There's the application in the, um, call it the utility scale, where you build solar in, in the desert somewhere, where you have a lot of sun, no land constraints. And then there's the application on rooftop behind the meter, um, think of like a big warehouse for example. So on the utility scale side, what we have is a lot of land. We can build generally as much as we want. There are land permitting issues, environmental impact studies um, that we have to work around for sure. But generally there is an abundance of empty land that has a lot of sun, but the difficulty to get that power uh, connected to the grid and delivered to load centers, right? This is a West Texas, you know, East Texas situation. This is the Central Valley, California and coastal cities where populations are. And for uh, clarity's sake, what is a load center? A load center, we mean like a city, like uh, buildings where you have electricity consumed, right? So Los Angeles, Austin, that's in power power systems lingo, we call those load centers. That's where the load is, the electricity draw is. So one thing that in the project development world we look at is there's a metric called the levelized cost of electricity. And that is the calculation that goes into your project financials that says, you know, given all your construction costs, design costs, all the above, what is your cost of electricity uh, what is your cost to generate a unit of electricity, a kilowatt hour, a megawatt hour? And that is the metric that the solar industry for the longest time has been focusing on in order to compete against, you know, first coal and natural gas and other generation sources to prove that we can be the cheapest cost of electricity. And because we're the cheapest, you know, we can help, help promote more of this and decarbonize the world, right? The metric that goes into the levelized cost of electricity is your total construction cost. And this is where the scale, scalability of a project comes into effect. There are certain costs that go into a project that are fixed, right? Um, your design team costs, your procurement overhead costs, 
if you spread those costs over much bigger project, you end up having a essentially a factor where those one-time costs, those big costs get spread around much bigger power generation source that your unit of electricity that you generate becomes cheaper as the project gets bigger, right? There's, you know, there's a theoretical limit to all this stuff, but for comparison, if you're building a 50 megawatt solar plant versus a 500 megawatt solar plant, both sizes are you know, within reason to imagine. If you go from 50 to 500, if you have land available, the bigger you go, the lower your levelized cost of electricity, the more competitive you can become in the market, the cheaper electricity becomes for end users, the consumers. The challenge we face is just because we can build a bigger project, we're not able to build a bigger project because of interconnection risks, challenges, getting power to, from generation to load from West Texas to East Texas, from Central Valley, California to the coastal California. So what ends up happening is opportunity goes to waste. When we could be building a bigger project, we don't. So how does Bitcoin help here? Deploying a combination of Bitcoin mining and some storage, we can now imagine a scenario where that solar developer has two buyers of electricity, the grid and the Bitcoin network. And if you're a good solar developer, the difference between a good developer and a bad developer is that the good developer goes and secures an offtake agreement, somebody to buy their power. The bad developer is one that wants to do a project but doesn't have a buyer. So the good developers are going to look for selling power to the market where somebody's buying the electricity. And now they have this other buyer, the Bitcoin network, and they can sell to. And now they are free to figure out how big of a project can they build and how fast. Because all of a sudden, they have a degree of freedom against interconnection delays, interconnection constraints, power markets fluctuating on them, going negative at times that they're producing power. And that enables them now to think freely, be unleashed. So that's one way where on the utility scale side, a solar developer can think about building a much bigger project at much better economics. On the smaller scale side, on the behind the meter rooftop solar, let's take the warehouse example. Generally, warehouses are located in areas where we have load or usage at the warehouse that is not as high as the space that's available on the rooftop, right? So what I mean by that is think of a, a transportation center where trucks come and go. Uh, these are massive buildings, flat rooftops. Uh, the electricity usage on that building, that shell, um, maybe justifies deploying solar to 10 to 20% of that rooftop and maybe no more beyond that because there isn't that much usage at that location. So that project may not necessarily be economical for a solar developer to go do when you're only building a small portion of that roof. And a lot of these commercial warehouses are under short-term lease arrangements where you don't have a, a tenant, a site host that will be there for 
the 20-year life cycle of a solar project to buy the electricity. And typically, solar projects are, are contracted under what we call a power purchase agreement, a PPA. And for commercial projects, it's a minimum 20-year project, um, by and large. Some of the you know, bigger buyers of electricity that have leverage over the market, they've signed 10-year PPAs. But by and large, most of these power purchase agreements between solar developers and commercial entities are 20-year terms. But because the tenant of those warehouses are, they come and go, they, they don't want to sign up for 20-year power purchase agreements, you see a lot of warehouses that don't have, have a lot of roof space, but no solar on them. There's load in the buildings that's not being offset by solar. There's load in the pocket of electricity grid uh, that that warehouse sits that solar could help offset, uh, but that's not happening. So how does Bitcoin help? If we can imagine a scenario where we are carpeting the entire rooftop with solar, so we're building the biggest solar we can because we have the space on the rooftop. Now, there's nothing else happening on that roof. We add a storage device. We add enough Bitcoin mining and size them optimally to be able to, as a flexible buyer of electricity, and that's the flexibility portion we should get to in a moment. We can now imagine a scenario where as a solar developer, you're building solar, putting batteries, putting Bitcoin miners, and you are sending your electricity to multiple locations. First, against the building load to offset their electricity at the lowest cost of electricity that you possibly can on that rooftop because you've now built the biggest project, you have the lowest cost. Two, you can send some of the power to the battery to use that against load shifting or offsetting load in the uh, non-solar hours in that building. Three, you have the Bitcoin miner that is now your flexible buyer of electricity that can buy any excess or surplus that you have and decide to either use that to generate Bitcoin and pay you revenues, or if the grid is willing to accept your solar exports and is paying you more for it because there's demand for that electricity elsewhere, you send that to the grid. And your Bitcoin miner can now fluctuate up and down as to how much of that power it buys uh, given the economics of each unit of solar that you're generating. I think that brings us to your second characteristic uh, that Bitcoin helps with, and that's utilizing mining to serve as the buyer of last resort for surplus power when facing curtailment orders. Can you give us a real world example of, of when that has happened? Um, yeah, so um, there are a lot of projects in California and in Texas where we have a lot of renewables where curtailment of those renewables are happening um, more and more um, year over year. And those numbers, those charts are available. I think uh, Lawrence Berkeley Labs has some of these charts that we can share with your audience. And that power... Oh, do you want to you explain what curtailment is? Yeah, so curtailment is uh, essentially a order that the operator of the grid imposes onto a generator. There are two types of it. There's an economic curtailment. There's a reliability curtailment. Economic curtailment is generally when there's not enough demand for electricity and the prices go negative. 
As a result, the generators decide to shut down or they're asked to shut down. Reliability is there's an event that has happened on the grid. Maybe you know, a line has gone down somewhere. There's grid balancing issues. The oversupply might cause voltage fluctuations on the grid. So the operator requires the generator to curtail their power until they can safely operate the grid. These issues are happening more and more now. And more renewables are facing these kind of curtailments on the utility scale side. On the rooftop solar side, this is starting to happen more and the um, requirements are coming in from grid operators where they are requiring in certain cases that the solar inverters have control mechanism such that the utility can shut them off in the event where a location on the grid that has a lot of rooftop solar um, might be causing any reliability issues so that the utility can shut those off. Those are areas that we believe are going to be creating opportunity for utilizing curtailed power where essentially power could be generated by renewables, but it can't. So we can go and put those into Bitcoin mining to help create optimized revenues for those renewables. So they can continue their operations unimpacted and have the, uh, the ability to see that um, there is a better and bigger and more prosperous world ahead for deploying these renewables. And just to highlight that, real developers are actually planning on planning for curtailment in their business cases. So when you put the business case together for a utility solar plant today, one of the key inputs is understanding the potential amount of curtailment that that plant will see over its lifetime. And it might be, you know, in extreme cases, you know, 10, 15, 20% in the future, where you'll just have to say, I will assume that, you know, this plant will produce 20% less than it technically is capable of doing because it will be asked to shut down at peak hours, you know, the middle of the day because of the types of issues Ali just explained. Yeah. And of course, that has a massive impact on the economics of that project, right? So curtail the higher curtailment gets, effectively, the more projects can uh, basically not be built because their economics don't stack up anymore. And that's that's something that all developers are having to grapple with and, and uh, find solutions to. Yeah. We are uh, looking at project cash flow performa for solar projects in West Texas. And they all have, they all start the same way. They have the top line of their monthly production. What could happen? There's a probability factor of uh, production between um, you know, P50 to P99, which is you know, the most optimistic, most conservative production. But very much below it are two lines. One line is for uh, projected outages due to mechanical issues, right? Like uh, something fails at the plant and the inverter goes out and there's some estimation of you know, how much that could impact production. And you know, by and large, the industry is getting so much better that these outages are rapidly fixed and or minimal. But then the next line is curtailment. 
And depending on each month of the year, the value changes. But in two examples of a West Texas of West Texas projects we're looking at, in certain months they're projecting up to 13% of curtailment losses. That they're just accepting that this is going to be our future, that we are not going to produce that much power in these months. And that's that's that headwind, that's that pressure that we are living in and we're seeing power plants, solar power plants live in and put up with because we're accepting that this is our fate, that we cannot produce all the power that we can be producing. And that goes into the economics of these projects and into decisions about how big to build them. But if we get us to a world where this pressure is now gone, and in fact, it becomes an opportunity to collect even more revenues, then our whole attitude changes. The lens we look at the world changes. And that's where Bitcoin can come and do for us. So again, the moral of the story is that it provides a financial incentive for renewable build out, without which a lot of these projects could never come online. The last thing I want to touch on with regard to the characteristics of Bitcoin mining uh, that make it advantageous in this situation is something that we should not ignore, uh, and that is other countries outside of the United States. If we are to address climate change, we can't only look at um, the United States to be the leader in that. We obviously need to look at the, the rest of the world. And so Bitcoin mining provides a unique uh, capability for addressing that. And you've said that building resilient and economically feasible, uh, quote, solar plus storage microgrids in developing nations can use Bitcoin mining uh, for a variable economic load. Tell us a little bit more about that specific uh, characteristic and how it's going to ultimately help, again, underdeveloped countries that we should not ignore, let alone place uh, undue burdens to uh, mitigate fossil fuel usage when uh, without that, arguably uh, unable to enjoy the same benefits that we have yeah. over the, you know, I, I think that's a very uh, inappropriate way to be looking at uh, demands on underdeveloped nations. But again, the, the, the benefit of Bitcoin is that it can uh, thread that needle and hopefully reduce the need for fossil fuels. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think, Nima, if you want to take the, the microgrid thesis as to how Bitcoin and batteries can help create that. And I'll supplement with some examples. Yeah. So I think it, 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 to some extent, it comes back to some of the things we were talking about earlier. The challenges that we've discussed, um, that Ali's been discussing about what projects face, a lot of those challenges exist in a much more acute form in emerging markets. So, you know, we... In, what, in, in developed countries, we have interconnection queues, um, but there is a grid and there's a process for how you connect to it. It might be lengthy and slow, and the ultimate answer might be no, but there's still a way to do that. In many emerging markets, you know, the grid physically does not exist or it's, you know, it's extremely unreliable, etc. And, and this is a massive hindrance to like the electrification and, and just the general development of countries right that comes with having reliable electricity supply and the economic development you can do around that and one thing that's always been proposed right has been solar microgrids right in a theoretical way that well the sun shines everywhere so theoretically we can generate electricity anywhere and then if people build solar and 
build you know wires you know in a small local community area they can develop what's called a microgrid so a microgrid is like a a very small scale uh kind of localized uh grid that is you know arranged by i would say by the users themselves in order to operate but the big challenge there is that a grid whether it's micro or massive always has to be balanced in real time and what does that mean every second of every day every grid has to perfectly match the amount of generation on that grid with the amount of consumption on that grid and if those two things are not perfectly matched the grid becomes imbalanced and unless if it's not correctly very quickly um that's where you get blackouts and um reliability issues and effectively the grid falls over so the bigger a grid gets, obviously, the easier it is to manage that because you have many different loads and you get, a, you know, it becomes a large enough entity to have a centralized operator who does lots of engineering studies and all the things we've been talking about that our grids have. But if you run a little microgrid in your, let's say, in a, in a village somewhere, a theoretical microgrid somewhere in a, in a village, you know, how do you, how do you do that balancing, first of all, and how do you get enough load at every second of the day to man to match the generation that's coming out you could for example get a factory to come and you know move into your local area and generate jobs and you say we'll we'll build a solar microgrid but how do you match the requirements of that factory the energy requirements of that factory perfectly with the solar you know the solar output of the solar panels on your microgrid and this is so it's been a theoretical solution for a long time, but practically it hasn't really taken off. And that's because we don't have a flexible enough way to create revenue from the electricity that we can generate on a microgrid. And this is where Bitcoin miners can come in. So they are an economic load. And by that, we mean they monetize electricity. They, they will effectively pay for the power that's being generated on that grid. But they're also fully flexible, so they can ramp up and down freely. The Bitcoin power market, one of the characteristics of the Bitcoin power market is that you can, you can turn it up or down as much as you want, and Bitcoin doesn't care. You could turn all your miners off this second, and Bitcoin says, fine, you, know, you, just, you chose to do that. I, I don't mind. So that full flexibility and the fact that it's a, it's a revenue-generating load provides you with a way to effectively finance and operate the microgrid itself because you're only going to build the microgrid if it's economically advantageous for all the participants um, and that means finding a way to pay for it so there's been this like chicken and egg problem which is we want to build a microgrid doesn't exist yet well let's convince someone to you know come build a factory or you know an, uh, a productive facility here well you know they look at it and they're like well i don't know if it's going to be reliable enough. I don't know <laughs> if this thing's actually going to work. And just, you know, they effectively don't happen. But now you could go in with Bitcoin mining and say, we're going to build the microgrid and we're going to use it for mining and finance the entire thing in that way. And then economically productive actors, businesses would look and say, oh, well, maybe I can come there and replace some of the mining that you're doing today with a factory. And oh, I can bring jobs. Right. And, and effectively you could so you could bootstrap a microgrid with Bitcoin mining and then over time 
replace the mining and phase down the mining as you bring in other types of loads and effectively like kind of kickstart a virtuous cycle of economic development based around local electricity production and you know reliable electricity supply. It is a this is of course hypothetical. This is part of our the beauty of the solar industry. Right? I've been in it for maybe 14 years now. And every year that we're in it, we talk about the future of solar. And then the next year comes and we talk about the future of solar. Like we keep this future is ever expanding and it just keeps getting bigger and bigger and better. I have never been more bullish on how much bigger this industry can get uh, than now with the introduction of Bitcoin. And not just Bitcoin, we've, we've been very much just talking about Bitcoin as a mining solution that buys electricity, but the, the socioeconomic impacts that Bitcoin can create and the payments network that it can enable, um, we haven't dug into those but I think in this example that you just brought up, Mark, you know, we can start to now let our imagination run wild. One of the problems that exists in project development is ultimately payment settlement, right? Somebody is investing in the project, is bringing powers, so let's imagine in, in an area where the grid is unreliable or there's no grid, um, but there is electrification needed that could help improve lives on in a certain location, right? We find the land to build solar, we bring some batteries, we bring some Bitcoin miners, we provide a microgrid where the homes in that area can buy electricity when they need it. Um, and then the Bitcoin miner and battery can help with the load uh, balancing to make sure that this microgrid can exist, right? Um, you know, with a battery that can help enable cold start, black start, you know, all those problems of a microgrid balancing goes away. Uh, we know it, it's feasible to do these developments. We are doing a lot of microgrid projects in California right now uh, with schools, but they have solar and battery. So leapfrogging this to a world where there's no grid and we can have uh, these three technologies provide a grid to a village, let's say, is feasible to think about. Then the issue becomes about payments, transactions. The transaction between the solar owner and the Bitcoin network is settled through the Bitcoin network itself, right? The miners are yours. When there's no buyer of electricity, let's say from the village, you're getting paid through the Bitcoin network. That's um, one of our friends in the industry, Sean, talks about how every kilowatt hour gets settled with you know, the hash right there every second, uh, which is a beautiful way to think about it. On the other side, if let's say the people in that, in that network, in that um, microgrid who are buying your electricity, uh, this might be a country that um, maybe the, the, the fiat, the currency they're dealing with, you know, they're dealing with cash or people are unbanked or um, settlement and transactions are not that reliable. This is where the other side of Bitcoin network comes into effect, where you can imagine a world where you're leveraging the Lightning Network, which is a second layer solution built on the Bitcoin blockchain, can help enable instantaneous, scalable, no fee transaction between the buyer of buyers of electricity and you as a generator. So the risk, the counterparty risk of, you know, am I going to get my electricity you know, production bill paid at the end of the month goes away. You can literally start streaming payments 
to your solar plant for every one of the users that are in that microgrid, leveraging the Lightning Network, not having to go through a bank, not having to wait for a month to issue a billing and do settlement, not having to take currency risk. All of this can happen leveraging that network because of Bitcoin. And all of a sudden now we have a world where we can bring electricity to any geography that we can deploy solar at. I think that's that's the vision of the world that, again, I think about it and think about the future of solar. I see these solutions as solutions that solar can create and enable. And it's all happening now because we have Bitcoin as another tool in our toolkit. And the, the moral of the story, again, to this example, the United States, Europe was able to benefit from the use of fossil fuels over the past century and a half to build the society and economic growth that we have. That same usage has resulted in climate change. And now we are asking underdeveloped nations, we're telling them that they cannot use these fossil fuels to share in the same economic growth uh, that we have, right? And that's why I'm so excited about Bitcoin mining in, in, in this particular situation is because now it can allow for that economic development, it can allow for that growth as a society, as a people, without as much of the usage of fossil fuels. Do you see it the same way? I do, and I take a bit more responsibility on us. And that is you know, use of fossil fuels, like you know, a gas generator, um, for example, to me, it's the same thing as solar generator. These are technologies, right? Technologies are agnostic to how they're being used. It's, it's us as people who choose to use the technologies the way we want to use them. What I want us to take, and us being people who believe in uh, our responsibility to fight climate change, to, to electrify, to decarbonize, is that we have the unconditional responsibility to ensure growth of renewables and that the world can benefit from solutions that we can create. Like we want to create, to use business terms, the best mousetrap to bring people into deploying solar. Like we want solar to be the best source of electricity for people to use it versus going to a diesel generator, for example, to get backup power, right? That, that is like something we're doing right here in California, right? Because of the risk of wildfires that we've had, the utilities are uh, implementing uh, these PSPS events, the public safety power shutoffs, where they're shutting down power to entire neighborhoods. When power goes out at a school, for example, and the power is out for more than six hours, by law, the school has to throw away all the refrigerated food that they have in their cafeteria. You start to do the economics on the food spoilage, and you realize there's a lot of money that's being lost. And forget about the interruption cost of you know, kids not getting educated, people having to go home. You start to reverse that and actually bring back up power to, these, to the equation. You realize there's a lot of economic benefit that could be had for avoiding these interruptions. We want to make those economic interruptions go away, leveraging solar and battery storage. Same thing we want to do, and we can imagine us doing in developing economies where they don't have a grid or they have an unreliable grid. So the job is on us. The responsibility is on us to bring these solutions to the market 
So that is the fastest, cheapest, most reliable way where people can get access to clean electricity, clean backup power, microgrid. That, that's the challenge I have for me, for ourselves, for, for those of us that are involved in this industry. I want to I add one point to what Ali said. So for me, I think that my message to, and I've written this in some of the pieces I've written, my message for like my peers in the energy industry is if we want to be action-oriented and to just go out and make the difference that we talk about, then we've never had a bigger opportunity because we now have a way to monetize electricity anywhere in the world. It doesn't matter anymore what the local rules are, what the local grid is like. Is it, you know, can we connect to the grid? It, does it pay us enough to build this project? All that stuff, bureaucratic and economic headwinds that renewable projects have seen. There is now an alternative that totally unleashes us to build what we want, where we want, where the will, where there's a will, there's a way. That's what Bitcoin enables for renewables. So for action-oriented uh, people that want to fight climate change or, en- or build energy infrastructure, there is an unparalleled opportunity now, right? Because all those easy kind of cop-out ways to say, no, nah, we won't build that. Well, that those answers aren't good enough anymore because suddenly now there's this this new kind of market for power that when used intelligently, when optimized properly, and these are all the problems we're working on, me and Ali, uh, like in our business, if we if we optimize Bitcoin mining well, if we deploy Bitcoin mining well, we understand it well, et cetera, we can, we're unleashed to build what we want, where we want, and to electrify and, and power everybody, you know, billions of people on, on the planet. It's truly, I mean, for me, you know, I, I've been in renewables like Ali, you know, for a couple of decades. And this is the most exciting development I have seen um, in, in that time. You know, other than kind of like, I would say kind of the spark of these technologies when kind of wind and solar kind of like became uh, mass, you know, were able to be kind of mass produced and went into their scalability phase. That was an exciting inflection point, I believe. But, you know, right now, as we've discussed, we're, we're facing lots of headwinds to further scaling these solutions out. And this is a really exciting inflection point where mining comes in and as mining is starting to become understood, right, by by the energy industry, it's going to be seen as another inflection point that just gives us such a powerful tool that we can deploy in many different ways, in many different situations. We can solve problems in developed countries, on developed grids, as we've discussed. We can solve problems on undeveloped grids or places where there are no grids and kind of like level that playing field globally and give everyone access to energy and electricity. Yeah, well said. One question that I wanted to ask that I forgot to is is a common one. And that is people often believe that the energy could be used for other purposes, that uh, it's wasted on Bitcoin mining. Uh, If there's excess energy, why isn't it being put to use uh, for something else? In addition to that, um, it's stealing energy from other uses. What are your comments on on those concerns? Yeah. so that's the way we we tackle that uh, is again through 
the lens of scarcity versus abundance, right? When, when you look at the world through the lens of scarcity, where you look at Bitcoin mining network as it is, and it used a certain amount of electricity. And if you come from the angle where Bitcoin has no value, right? Um, it doesn't matter how much electricity it's using, you'll always say it's a waste. But once you get off that and you go off the other fork where you say Bitcoin is a technology, uh, it is a decentralized network. It is here. The cat is out of the bag. And you start to look at it from the lens of, all right, what can we do with this, right? To want to go and solve Bitcoin's electricity usage with renewables, then what you're trying to do is to box Bitcoin into a fixed thing and say either eliminate it or power that with renewables. And that's the end of the story. But if you change your lens and you think of Bitcoin as a buyer of electricity through the lens we're looking at it, then you start to see that, oh, it can actually help you expand more renewables. And some of that power will go to Bitcoin mining, but a lot of it will go to the grid, to the world, to the buildings. The excess electricity problem, the curtailment problem, um, and by the way, there's more risks in the industry. There's basis risk and merchant risk and counterparty PPA risk. I mean, these things exist. Like we are seeing examples of you know, solar projects getting built and then there's a problem with actually recovering the costs. Like those are uh, real. Those problems exist and we haven't been able to solve them because we do not have the solution to solve them, right? Or the solutions to solve them are very big solutions that take time. We talked about the grid. Nima mentioned about you know, our grid. It's a great invention. The fact that we can turn on a light bulb and it comes on as we click the switch is a miracle, right? Like every time you turn on the switch and a light bulb gets turned on, you know, you should be ecstatic because that means some power got generated in order to power your light bulb, right? Because this, all this stuff is instantaneous, right? Electricity is not stored anywhere. We forget that. Um, one way to fix and bring more energy to the market is to invest in our infrastructure, our transmission lines. That's a problem we've been talking about for decades. And it's a problem we're going to be facing for decades. We are making headways, uh, but they are slow. They take a long time. And in the meantime, it could really slow down growth of renewables. A number of papers just came, back, came out recently, which we posted on um, our LinkedIn channel. But the interconnection queue of solar and wind projects is like through the roof as to how many of them are just waiting and how long it takes for them to go through the study. We are wasting potential to go build renewables. And you know, with Bitcoin mining, it's, it could be very much a you know, Johnny on the spot, short-term solution, come in for a couple of years, enable renewables to get built, and these machines run out, take them away, the rest of the power, once the grid is open, can go to the grid. The way we are imagining Bitcoin mining going in, how we're modeling projects is, we are using a portion of the underutilized, undervalued power from these uh, solar plants to go into Bitcoin mining. And that underutilized portion can help increase the economics for these projects, where otherwise we have no other solution for. And with Bitcoin's nature of being 
you know, deployable anywhere you are. Like you can put it in shipping containers. It can show up to your site. You can ramp it up and down. It doesn't, you know, the Bitcoin network doesn't care. The Bitcoin network doesn't need a contract with you to say how many Bitcoin miners you can plug in, turn on or turn off. Like it's a decentralized network. There's no hierarchy in it. There's no enforcement of it. The rules are mathematical. Computers are deciding what happens. It's very transparent. You're not interrupting anybody, anything, any human being by turning off your Bitcoin miners or by adding a bunch to it. That flexibility, those degrees of freedom, we've never had. And we can leverage that to help grow renewables. Now, some renewable, some Bitcoin mining may happen in ways that you know, we may not like, but it's a technology. We cannot stop the technology from doing what it, you know, it can help somebody do. Like the internet is a great invention. Some use it for good, some use it for bad. We believe that by and large, most of the use is for good. I think we can create, and we have the responsibility to create the opportunity for Bitcoin to be used in the way we're talking about it, so that it helps bring a equitable wealth prosperity to the planet, uh, given its ability to help grow renewables. Not to temper any optimism here, but what concerns or reservations do you have about Bitcoin mining uh, and its application uh, to renewable energy build out, or perhaps question marks, uh, unknowns that do concern you? Um, look, I think a lot of stuff we're talking about here, we're just at the beginning of the journey and we've yet to see you know, how the journey goes. There are deployment examples of um, mining being paired with renewables or mining being used as a grid demand response resource. These are actually happening. We are seeing miners in Texas act, acting as good actors and and modulating their power use when the grid needs electricity. Uh, I think there's a lot of rationality that makes us hopeful. Things we don't know yet is, you know, we the Bitcoin network itself is a machine that's operating and you know, mining blocks every every nine to ten minutes or so, and reward adjustments take place every four years. And you know, the overall arching future of it is yet to be seen. We can see trajectories of it. Um, but bringing in Bitcoin into the equation with renewables is still something that we'd like, you know, hasn't happened in a broad sense. Many in professionals in our industry are starting to see it. They're talking about it. We're advocating for it. We're having good conversations around it. But what we haven't seen yet is what happened with batteries and solar. So in the early days of solar, once the capital risk and development risk of solar basically was underwritten, um, that's all we wanted to do, build solar. The battery technology became available, but in the early days, we couldn't get solar developers to add batteries to their projects. What had to happen was battery developers came in and deployed their batteries at sites that had solar. It took some time, but then ultimately, Solar developers realized that batteries are another tool in their toolkit, but they started promoting and building solar plus batteries because the value economics was clear, the risk was, was understood. We haven't gone to that point yet where solar developers can view Bitcoin mining as another technology to add to their project. So the world is now divided into two. We have the Bitcoin miners that need electricity. We have solar owners that need buyer of their electricity. 
So merging those two is what needs to happen now. But where I want to get to, where I hope we get to, is that solar owners and developers imagine projects that have solar, battery, and Bitcoin, and develop them as part of the equation in order to help grow uh, the industry and promote the electrification and decarbonization of Iran. So that's, that's one area where, again, I'm hopeful it hasn't happened yet, but we are in the early days and um, we are pushing for that world to, you know, to become visible. I do have one last question, but prior to that, any final thoughts uh, with regard to anything we've, we've discussed or missed? Uh, we have a call to action, but I'd like to leave that for the end, but uh, go ahead. Unless Nima, you have something else? No, no, I'm good. My last question and one that I ask uh, everybody is, what gives you hope? So please, Ali, what gives you hope? Um, what gives me hope? Um, I am hopeful in that we can bring in enough people that uh, can get beyond the headlines and invest the time needed to study and understand um, this world of electricity, Bitcoin mining, renewables, decarbonization, uh, purely through the lens of physics and math. And the more people we get to come and look at it in that angle, I think the more allies we'll have in this journey, the more um, fellow pilgrims that will come and join us. And we are starting to see that. And I, I want to see more of this happen, more collaborators come in. And I think if we are right, if this world that we're talking about comes to exist, if we make visible what is as of yet invisible, boy, are we in for a great ride? And I see this is something that for the, if I'm lucky for the rest of my, maybe three decades of my career, this is all I'll get to do. And maybe by the time we're done, maybe sooner, we'll get to a massively electrified grid where we have electrified many of our industries and we've decarbonized the grid to the ambitious goals that we have. Nima? What gives me hope? <laughs> That's a big question. Um, in the context of this conversation, I guess, you know, what gives me hope is the fact that these conversations, like the one we're having today, are happening with increasing frequency because I think there's been to some degree as energy professionals like myself and Ali that, you know, believe in decarbonization, there's been a reluctance to look at the Bitcoin mining solution, honestly. And even if we realized it in years past, we were probably a bit, a bit quiet about it and it wasn't being discussed enough, right? Because really nothing has changed on the Bitcoin side. This solution has been available since 2009. It's just us as humans that are just starting to understand what we can do with it. And I can see this, it's really starting to snowball. And when we see, you know, great people, like, you know, some of the conversations we've had with like Troy Cross and, and, and Margot uh, Pez and, and people like that coming in and all starting to see the potential, that gives me a huge amount of hope because it's a broad spectrum of people with different backgrounds understanding the opportunity. I really think we're at that inflection point. And even though I think, you know, this kind of like what we call in Bitcoin, the energy FUD, right? Like the kind of pushback against Bitcoin's energy footprint and stuff feels like it's at 
a peak right now with some of the things that are happening. Actually, I think we're at that inflection point where relatively rapidly, I think the conversation is going to almost do a 180. And, you know, we're going to see, I think, good stories start coming out of markets like Texas, where you could almost think of, I think, ERCOT as like a prototype <laughs> grid for uh, Bitcoin mining coming in and, and, and doing good things uh, for that grid. So that's what gives me hope is that this conversation is happening and it's happening in many places. It's happening in the right industries. It's happening among solar people, amongst wind people, amongst grid operators, energy professionals generally. And I just see, personally, I'm seeing penny drops all over the place. Like I'm having penny drop conversations every week. And so is Ali, I know, where people that would have had a completely different view on Bitcoin mining a couple of years ago, suddenly, you know, start nodding their head and they say, oh, right, oh, this is what everybody's going on about. You know, and when you hear things like that, that gives me a huge amount of hope that we're going to really turn this thing around. In, in a good amount of time. Perfect. Thank you for sharing you too. What's our call to action today? Call to action. I think it ties well to this uh, question of hope, which I love that you asked that, Mark. Um, the call to action is, uh, as Nima said, having more of these aha moments, more of these conversations to take place. One group of people that we'd love to bring on board are the policymakers people in the government, whether it's uh, uh, you know, local, city, state, um, or federal, we are seeing a, a you know, different set of views. Like different states have different views towards Bitcoin and Bitcoin mining. Uh, the conversation gets quite muddied with cryptocurrencies, and you know, this is a tool being used for bad reasons and for bad actors. But there is a conversation that is this conversation we are having, which, no, this is a technology and it can be used for good. But we need to find a way to bring everybody along. And we want this to be a solution that, like Nima said, you know, Texas is very much has a positive posture toward it. And there are different angles as to why this is good and why this is happening in Texas. One angle of it is that I encourage the audience to share with their policymakers is the angle of jobs. And that is that there is a race going on and will be going on, I believe, between states to create more jobs that Bitcoin can help create. So at the grand scale, what Bitcoin mining can look like is you know, data centers, right? Data center jobs are essentially design engineering jobs, construction jobs, some operation jobs. You pair that up with these data centers should be powered with renewables. Then you're creating jobs in solar and wind design engineering, jobs for construction, jobs for operations. If you imagine this world of abundance where we're unleashing the growth of this technology through deployment of more renewables, you can begin to see a lot of just you know, design engineering operation jobs, design construction operation jobs come to every state that helps to promote and leverage this technology. Beyond that, and those are the easy jobs. Beyond that, you can help create long-term jobs in manufacturing, onshoring manufacturing of these chips, the devices themselves. We're seeing that happen. We're seeing investment take place in the US, but this could help bring a lot more of those long-term steady jobs that 
you know, we can help create new factories. Pair that up with fixing these devices, these uh, mining machines. A lot of the issues that we see now, and you know, this could change, you know, with technology improving. But there's a lot of vocational type jobs that could get created, where you know the miners, you know, a fan breaks down, a fuse blows, wire has to be replaced. These are jobs that can be created locally. You can create vocational programs. You can ship your broken miners to a location that can help you know, fix these, send them back. Like we don't have these jobs right now in the U.S. You know, broadly speaking, right? It's we're trying to fix it. You know, find solutions here and there. But as policymakers, this is an easy win where you can help bring jobs to your state. And if you put that angle on. We help send a message up to senators, congresspeople to view this through the angle of job creation. I think it can help unleash a lot of the, call it the regulatory risk that maybe some of our fellow industry folks feel exists, right? Because there is this talk about, oh, there's regulation happening. And it's usually viewed through fear, but regulation could be viewed through you know, something good as well. And it's our job to help contribute to that conversation. And jobs is a big one. Absolutely. I think that's a, a perfect thing to end on. And that's the call to action to reach out to uh, policymakers. And it's a call to action for myself because I've been thinking about coming up with a template that we can use uh, to easily send to our politicians. So on that note, I'll start working on that so that uh, people can use it. Love it. Gentlemen, this has been a, a true pleasure. I have learned a great deal, and I know our listeners will too. Please tell tell the listeners where they can find you and your work. Um, you can find us on LinkedIn, Optimize Infrastructure. Uh, we post every week. By we, I mean Nima posts every week, and I give it a like. <laughs> uh, and that has been very helpful. We've seen people interact with us and reach out to us, you know, direct messages. Uh, so we try to bring in as much of the uh, Bitcoin solution side to that conversation. Uh, otherwise, I'm on uh, Twitter uh, at Ali Shaharasaz and Nima. Yeah, and people can get me on Twitter at Nima Cheeps. <laughs> Perfect. I'll have that in the show notes as well. Again, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Awesome. Thanks a lot, Mark. It was a pleasure. Thanks, Mark. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, don't forget to please leave a review of the podcast. It'll take you two seconds to hit that five-star button. I really appreciate it. Come on, do it now!